We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome to Crazy and the King. With somebody who is not allowing the grass to grow up under their feet. What's popping? How you doing? What is popping, my friend? I am wonderful from a... On the road again. On the road again. Yes. You you remember that song? Was was that a song or was that like a show? No, I think it was both. On the road again. I can't wait to get on the road again. Yeah, that, I think it was Rogers. a song too. Kenny Rogers. Yes, Kenny Rogers. How's, how about that? Did you like Kenny? <laughs> Did you oh, like him? Oh, yeah. My mom was like in love with him when I was a kid. So we were all big, big Kenny Rogers fans. <laughs> yeah, I think I like, I, you know, I think all of my life, Kenny Rogers has had like a full gray beard my entire life. Mm-hmm. Like, that's all I remember. I don't remember the young Kenny Rogers. I just, I literally yeah. remember him always having a gray beard, you know, kind of like the, uh, is that the DeSecchi's man, the DeSecchi's beard guy oh, who's got the yes, gray beard? The most, the most interesting man in the world. Yes. Exactly. Him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I think about when I see Kenny Rogers. How you feeling? You feel all right? Yeah. Doing great. Happy to be back at work. Happy to just be back chilling with you and, uh, getting ready to celebrate some really good friends. So I can't fucking complain. Awesome. 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 We love when we can get close to our friends. You are out of town. We're not going to tell people where you are. You are in a secret, undisclosed location, very similar to witness protection program. And the only reason I say that is because mm. we never know what's going to happen this weekend during the nuptials. And I don't want anyone to have an iPhone and Android or any other uh, photography related device throwing you up on YouTube or anything similar to that. And it might not even be you. It could actually be the company that you keep. You know how that could be. So we are going to keep you in oh, a I, secret. I keep some company. Yeah. There we go. We'll keep you in a secret undisclosed <laughs> location, but here's what's good about what we are talking about. So the very first thing that I saw this week prepping for our show was a story on uh, sleeping. It was a sleeping hazard. And and what it said was for those of us that are middle aged, if we are getting less than six hours of sleep, we run a higher risk of dementia in our late 70s. Now, okay. you may not consider yourself to be middle aged. I do. Oh, oh, no. the ch- oh. You do. Wait, you, you do? consider me to be middle aged? No, I said oh, you may you may not. No, I said <laughs> you may not consider yourself to be middle aged. But you do, as in you consider me to be middle aged. No no. <laughs> no, no, no. No. I consider me to be middle aged. Not you. Okay. I'm I'm yeah, I'm classify you could classify you. I'm classifying me. I consider TL to be middle age. And the reason why I put the story out there is because a lot of people don't know this, not that they should, but my sleeping pattern sucks. Yeah. It's terrible, man. Like I'll wake up. I I can go to bed at 10, wake up at 1230 or 1 a.m. 
and will find myself scrolling for two, three hours and still back up at 6.30, 7, ready yeah. to rock and roll. So my sleeping pattern is terrible. So I only put the story out there, not for us to talk about it, but for those who are middle-aged like me, sleeping less than six hours, you might want to change your program. Yes, get after it, get after it. Um, and it looks like what Goldman Sachs has now put out its senior U.S. executives who are black or African-American. Um, and and why don't you tell us, Julie, how many? Um, ooh, wait for it. Oh, no, 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 no. Before, before you do that, before you do that, what's the larger number? So there are 1,500 see, see the larger U.S. Number. executives. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. And forty-nine of them for people, you know, Mm -hmm. are black. Four nine, and even a smaller number of executives, even a smaller number of executives, are classified as black or underrepresented at Morgan Stanley. Wow. Here's the question. Are we suggesting uh, on Wall Street that there are not more capable, qualified, black, brown, LGBTQ people with disabilities? And which actually raises the point. They classify the black executives at being 49. I'd love to see a report that comes out and says, well, how many of those executives are LGBTQ? How many uh, declare uh, a, a disability, yep. whether seen or unseen? I'd love for that to be included in these numbers. Whenever they, whenever they present these numbers, that's the one thing that I hope more organizations do is that they divorce themselves from only reporting on black and brown people, but more of the diversity spectrum because I want to keep the conversation as broad as possible. Strategies can be narrow, if you will, but I want to see more numbers for more people. Yeah. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that when we're all represented, we're all getting more opportunities and we are, we shouldn't be fighting over a smaller and smaller piece of the pie. People with disabilities, veterans, Black people, we are all stronger when we're all represented and it should not be a fight against each other. And I know that that's hard and I know that we're protective of our individual communities, but we've got to embrace that piece of how do we get there together? Because, I mean, to me, it's still so much of a class fight. The the 1% are not going to give up their place and their supremacy if we don't figure out how to create a majority that is stronger than them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, We can learn so much from it. I appreciate Goldman for releasing their numbers, stepping up and saying, we're going to be more transparent. I appreciate Morgan Stanley. Yes. In an indirect way, releasing their numbers. If if they didn't release them, the person who wrote the story uh, released them, if you will. We got to see more of that. Uh, Talking about releasing NDAs, um, there are some folks out there that are fighting and 
uh, encouraging employers to release employees from their NDAs. And Ifioma Azomo is one of those individuals. You may recall her name. I'm pronouncing it maybe not the the right way, but it's Ifioma, I-F-E-O-M-O, Azoma, O-Z-O-M-A. Ifioma was uh, once uh, an employee with Pinterest. And over the last year or so, she and a number of other uh, Black individuals have left the organization and have been very vocal in their grievances, their grievances around discrimination, harassment, and some of the other uh, aggressions that took place. And they did a story on Ifioma. I want to say it was probably last July or August in New York Times. I know there was a story done on her in the Washington Post as well. Uh, a number of organizations, outlets covered her story and or the story of several individuals. And what she's been talking about lately is release us from these NDAs, because really the NDAs do nothing to protect the company's IP and some of the other things that they're doing. She says those are actually connected and covered by confidentiality agreements, which is a separate relationship that you have with the employer. You know, Jay, I never really thought about that. I never thought about the confidentiality agreement and the NDA. And maybe it's because I've been out of corporate America since 1998. Maybe it wasn't something, well, it certainly wasn't something that I had to execute when I was in corporate America. But I think I'm with Ifioma. Like, why are we having all these NDAs? You know, a lot of times when people reach out to me, Julie, and they want me to listen to what their tech product is or um, they have an idea. Now, mind you, I don't even really know them. And they'll say, well, Torn, we need you to sign the NDA. I'm like, uh, well, we can cancel that. I'm not I'm not signing your NDA. You ain't all that important to me. Plus, you want to talk to me. So I'm not signing an NDA. How do you feel about them? Yeah, I think that. I have always used NDA and confidentiality agreement interchangeably. Okay. So this was a learning moment for me. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone should be protected, especially a corporation from their bad behavior and their bad culture. Um, so if there, if that distinction exists, which obviously I've just learned, um, I would say HR is not communicating it in a distinct manner to employees and again we don't have a lot of rights as individual employees and so we have to figure out how do we as a collective make sure that we can have our voices heard individually because at this point it's like hey sign the damn thing or don't get a job right? Or don't keep a job or don't get a promotion. Yeah. That's what choice do you yeah. have? Yeah, no, it does come down to that. And for a lot of individuals, you do execute it because we got to work, we got to generate income. And, and I think I, again, I'm in a different position. And so I'm not frowning on people yeah. that execute NDAs and I'm not suggesting that I never execute an NDA. I just say more often than not, it's not a document that I sign, but I absolutely agree with her. People should not be, uh, they shouldn't have that as, uh, maybe an impediment to being able to do and be, uh, you know, all, uh, all that they can be with a, a particular organization. Hey, hey, listen, our last short story for uh, this week's episode, it, it speaks to supplier diversity programs. And, and I found the article over 
uh, on Harvard Business Review, and it says that supplier diversity programs are failing black businesses. Um, who's surprised? I, and, and, and the reason why I, I say that is because, you know, when we go into organizations and we uh, engage in uh, consulting mandates, oftentimes we are uh, tasked with evaluating supplier diversity programs. And we see that organizations are struggling to do business with other organizations led by other uh, representatives on the diversity spectrum. And so we always challenge them to restructure that supplier diversity program so that it, is, it, it has a wider or casts a wider net and brings more, um, more opportunity into the organization for consideration. And so this said that, you know, supplier diversity programs actually last year, we saw black businesses lose money. I think the, the statistic in the story, Jay, was like 43% revenues dropped 43% in the black businesses that were surveyed for this story. Damn, are you serious? Yeah, it was ugly. Um, it was absolutely ugly. And so the person who wrote the story, you can find it again over on HBR. She says, um, you know, just four quick tips, four or five quick tips. Number one, be customers, not teachers. You know, many supplier diversity programs always want to groom the black business owner. We want to mentor the black business owner. We want to train, educate and raise up the black business owner as if that black business owner is not capable of joining the list and delivering what they say that they're going to deliver. So it's really not all that hard. Number two, she says, establish pricing transparency. Uh, some businesses really are competing against themselves where we are lowballing. I know I can't tell you how many times I've gone into uh, engagement, certainly years ago versus now, but even a little bit now, I'll go into engagements and I'm severely undercutting myself. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that I'm being competitive, but I'm really undercutting myself. And that is absolutely a problem. Number three, avoid mission creep. Um, and then the last thing that she says is fix pay cycles. Uh, a lot of these organizations, Jay, they have like 75 day pay cycles, 90 day pay cycles. I have two clients right now that are on 60 day pay cycles. And in reality, that 60 days is closer to 90 days for my accounts receivables to come back. A lot of businesses can't, they can't sustain themselves waiting for, you know, the dollar to, to circulate, you know, once a quarter, if you will. So supplier okay. diversity programs, if you got one, we got to do a better job. Yeah. And, and the pay cycles and is a huge one, but also the complexity of just the setup as a vendor process. Um, and, and we go through this as a nonprofit, you know, getting set up in procurement for some companies is excessively burdensome for a small business. It's excessively burdensome when it's a lot of times not even related to what you do. And then I know even some companies now are vending out their supplier work and we the business owners are paying a, a high percentage fee to that business like it, it's just an all-around um this isn't working kind of thing um and some companies i've that, yeah. that we work with i've seen do it really well in terms of procurement but the majority of them it, it's not even just the 
the spend, like the perception and the, the decision-making, it's systemic issues as well, like pay cycle. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. So we will remain stuck as a nation until we redesign the systems that have intentionally kept us divided for generations. The status quo will not hold, said by Mitch Landrew, founder of E Pluribus Unum. Let's get into this week's show. Excellent. So I think I'm on a, a roll this week um, based on kind of the, the intro stories. I'm going to stay kind of on the same track that I have been um, thought wise anyway. So um, Kroger over the past, let's say six or six weeks or so has or is in process of closing three Southern California stores um, in the, the Long Beach area. So just south of LA proper um, because Long Beach instituted a $4 an hour hero pay ordinance, which is simply going back to, to pandemic language. The hero pay is for retail and other essential workers that have to be physically present for us to get our food, to make our supply chain work, for to get our medicines, all of those things. And Kroger says, okay, well, we know this, this hero pay ordinance ordinances on the table. So let's just go ahead and say these stores are underperforming and start to close them before this ordinance even gets passed in anticipation that it will. Got it. Hold on. Let me just make sure that I'm clear. Yep. So what you're saying to me is that, um, or what I'm hearing from you is that they they executed a preemptive strike. Kroger decided that rather than boost the compensation for frontline workers, rather than dip perhaps into overall profits, regional profits, rather than shift some things around to make sure that these stores could stay open, that people in those areas could have access to quality food, clean environment. They simply said, we're just going to close the store because we don't, we don't want to pay an additional $4 an hour to these frontline workers that are helping our business overall. Yes. And, and here's, here's the, even the more of a kicker. So you're spot on and in the statement about closing the stores, Kroger says, this is going to add a $20 million to our operating budget between those three stores for 120 days. So over, it's a limited duration ordinance. It's not a minimum wage hike. It's not a forever thing. It's 120 days. And Kroger, who made more than, hold on, let me just... I, I have the exact numbers, right? They had a mm-hmm, net mm-hmm. income in Q3 of last year, so ending sep- September, of a dollar three per share of 300 million versus prior year. And they beat their earnings estimates from, from 54 cents to 73 cents a share. <laughs> 
and I'm not done. They are instituting a $1 billion buyback program of their shares. So if you're not a stock person like I am, yeah, explain that. that, explain that. That is mm -hmm. a way that companies pull shares out of the market and they increase the value of the existing shares because you create more scarcity, which means shareholders and executives get richer and more and build more wealth while their frontline employees, the only people you don't have a business if you don't have cashiers and baggers and stockers, Kroger, you are tipping all of that money back and you can't take a one-time hit of $20 million. This is bullshit. And we see you. You can't play the game that this is an underperforming store. Like, the populace is getting educated enough about what's happening versus what these companies say and what they do and what they say their values are and what they live their values to be that they're just not going to be able to hide like this. I mean, this article that I'm reading right now is from Fox Business calling out Kroger on the buyback. Yeah. Let me tell you. Um, so I, I just ran over to Investopedia and I pulled up fiduciary for just a second. And, mm. you know, a fiduciary is a person or organization that acts on behalf of another person or persons putting their client's interests ahead of their own with a duty to preserve good faith and trust. Being a fiduciary requires being bound both legally and ethically to act in the other's best interests. Here's the reason why I brought that up, Jay, uh, because oftentimes when we have stories like this, people will say that the board of directors has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. Yeah. I get that. I absolutely get that. But what it said was another person or persons putting their client's interests ahead of their own. And so I would love to see in some of these instances and in some of these stories, particularly in a time like COVID, maybe you break away from the norm in a time like COVID. Because COVID, we've said for the last 14 months, this is a new normal. We have said that, correct, Julie? that's been a mm -hmm. phrase, right? We have. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, so if, if, if this is a new normal, then I would love to see boards of directors say to themselves, say to executives, say to wall street, which we talked about earlier, that we're going to break away from the norm and we're going to protect the employees that are inside of these organizations. You said in the story that they are up 300 million year over year. You didn't say that they were at a $300 million loss. You said that they were up 300 million year over year, correct? Correct. Got it. So it would just suggest to me that we can afford to pay $4 an hour for the stores in this particular region. Yes, yes. And and it and I love that you brought that fiduciary conversation in because you're you're absolutely right. 
companies have a responsibility to their shareholders. It, it shareholders are an important part of the ecosystem. However, right for last year, Kroger beat their EPS, their earnings per share by more than 10 cents for an earnings per share of $3 and 30 cents. That's huge when you think about how many shares of of Kroger are out there. And Kroger stock has gained 20% year to date in 2020 versus the S&P 500, which was only up three and a half percent. So they've met their fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. The fiduciary responsibility is not to make you cravenly wealthy and rich with no end in sight at the cost of your company and the cost of your employees. And you said it in your quote before we started into our stories is that the status quo is not sustainable. And these are the best examples that I can continue to bring to our audience week after week, month after month to say, as DNI professionals, as people who give a shit about other people, this is not sustainable. And it's going to break for all of us, not just Kroger. This is not sustainable. Yep. You're absolutely right. And again, when we are talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, that that I stands for like all of us. That inclusion is all of us. And and you're right, the status quo will not hold sure short-term gains short-term wins some people are going to escalate and win in an an incredibly wild way i'm not asking that you take away from you know this group so to speak and give to another i'm just simply saying you know you should be able to look at this picture and say we can sacrifice for what you said 120 days what, whatever it is, yes. we could sacrifice for 12 months. So I just I, I, I just feel like we can organizations like Kroger uh, and others can do better. But it was positions like this one right here, Julie, which are why I left corporate America in 1998. So this is not something new. Uh, I literally, no. literally left my organization because, you know, of a penny. You mentioned a penny. And, and I won't get into the conversation now, but I remember vividly sitting in a meeting and saying, why, why are we fighting over a penny? Like we're fighting over a penny. And my leaders were like, they didn't like me for that. So anyway, um, good time for us to put in a job vite ad. So why don't we put up uh, and for those of you who might walk away when we do the ad, I'm just going to tell you real quick. The uh, link is job vite dot com forward slash c a t k jobvite.com c a t k drop it in there for a sale really quick before torin and i hop back into the episode have you heard about the new jobvite the social recruiting innovator is now the end-to-end ta suite leader helping ta teams attract engage hire onboard and promote the talent they need to succeed but built specifically for talent acquisition professionals the Jobvite Talent Acquisition Suite delivers an unmatched depth of capabilities from AI to DNI, recruitment marketing to applicant management, new hire onboarding, employee referrals, internal mobility, all with next-gen analytics to help you prove the value you deliver to your organization. Whatever your recruiting challenge, Jobvite has a solution. Visit jobvite.com slash C-A-T-K today. 
Again, jobvite.com forward slash C-A-T-K. Now let's get back into the show. Awesome. All right. So um, let's finish up this show. Um, you're familiar with Red Thread, Red Thread, Stacey Gar, Stacey Gar and her team over at Red Thread? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So they looked at like 50 academic and business articles, reports and books, uh, and they put forth a, a, a paper this past week, uh, an incredible read. And we're not going to get into it. We actually can't get into it because the uh, read is behind a paywall. Um, and quite frankly, because of time, I'm not going to try to log in and bring it up. But what I will tell you is that uh, inside of the report, they summarized um, five key themes that emerged from their perusal of these 50 pieces of literature around diversity and inclusion. So what they found was very interesting. And it caused me to pause for a moment, Julie, because I said to myself, for as long as I've been doing diversity and inclusion, small things would change here, small language would shift over there. But for the most part, I've been on the same journey. I know I don't say, I used to always say like in 2011, 2012, all I would say is diversity and inclusion. I didn't say equity until probably 2017. I didn't say belonging until probably late 2018, maybe mid 2019, something like that. So my language has gotten more expanded over the last decade, 12 years, if you will. But the pieces that I focus on have remained consistent. And the very first theme that jumped out of all of the articles that Stacia and her team that they covered, the very first theme was traditional diversity training doesn't work. I'm actually going to try to pull the article up and see if I can log in. But while I'm doing that, just I want you to comment on point number one only. Your experience with it, does it catch you by surprise? Just, I, I would love to hear your comment. So I think that we have the best example of why traditional diversity training doesn't work this week with the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Okay. Minnesota or Minneapolis Police Department spent $10 million in inclusivity training, in implicit bias training, in diversity training for the Minneapolis Police Department since Philandro Castile was murdered. And that didn't stick, right? It didn't change the fundamental white supremacy that lived and arrogance that lived in this officer who thought he could act against a black man without impunity. And so I think training is important. Don't get me wrong. We have lots of eyes that still need to be open. We have lots of, but it has to be constant. It has to be repetitive and it has to be lived after it's done. The, the, the sheer fact that we did a training doesn't mean shit. No, you're absolutely right. And let me tell you, uh, speaking of not meaning shit, uh, it says here, the positive effects of diversity training rarely last beyond a day or two. And a number of studies suggest that it can activate bias or spark a backlash. And that's the piece that I always focus on is how do we go into organizations and encourage them to be more, more intentional, more substantive around their effort? How do we structure uh, a new chase, a new effort, a new intention 
How do we help them model and show up better in a way that doesn't alienate groups of people, that doesn't necessarily punish groups of people, keeps more folks seated at the table? Um, And when I saw that the positive effects of diversity training rarely last more than a day or two, I was like, wow. So point number two that stood out for them was that um, people look at DEIB competencies and not skills. So tell me what that means. I always get a little confused and I I think it's just something simple that's not not obvious to me. But what is the difference when you say a competency? Isn't a competency based on demonstrating a skill like that confuses me? Yeah. So when they think about and talk about competency, um, they're looking at think of it this way, Julie, think of the, the, the term business acumen. What do you know? I'm competent. Okay. But knowing is not necessarily the same thing as doing. So I'll give you an example from my time as a leader inside of MCI communications. I remember going after a leadership role. The first time I went after a leadership role and I had a high degree, my sales performance was off the chart. I was normally close to two, 300% to my sales plan. And when I went after this leadership position, I didn't get the promotion. Another individual got the promotion and his sales ability was always around 110, 115% to plan. So I'm at 300% of my sales goal. He was at 115, 120, 130% of his sales goal. True story. Okay. But he was a better writer than I was. He was a better communicator on paper than I was. And so when, when we got to the portion of the interview where it said, how will you develop your team, motivate your team, inspire your team? He was able to eloquently draft out what he would do in this beautiful way. And they gave him the promotion. They totally disregarded my skill of being able to sell. And they weighted me more on my competency to talk about my ability to sell. And they trusted that he had a better written position that he would be able to develop the team. Well, the end result of the story was the team when he took over was like number two in the building. They quickly became one of the poorest performing teams. I eventually got promoted. And one of the teams that I took over was a poor performing team. And we ended up becoming one of the best teams in the entire country. Forget the building, the entire country. So that's the difference between competency and skill. A lot of DEIB programs are, or promotions or people in these roles, they're, they're placed in the role because they have the language They have the pedigree, they have the degree, but they don't necessarily have the skill set to be able to institute, to be able to really show and work with other people to make that come to life. Does that make sense? Yes. And that was a perfect example. Thank you for taking a second and answering that for me. Absolutely. Third thing that jumped out for Red Thread, skills for DEIB transcend individual roles and organizations. No shit. And the reason why I say that is because far too often we've put too much stock in the chief diversity officer. 
We've put too much stock in this diversity program manager. We've put too much stock in one, two, three individuals inside of a company and not made it a corporate initiative. We've not made it an everybody come sit at the table initiative. We've not said we want everyone to be up under the tent of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, pushing this effort forward. And so this entire article for me, while I appreciate Red Thread, Stacia, and her team, I'm smiling because I'm like, this is all the shit I've been talking about for a decade. A decade. And that's why things aren't moving, right? Is because we're still seeing the same behaviors, the same trends, the same bullshit. Um, the pros know what needs to change, right? Station, her team know what needs to change. You know what needs to change. I know what needs to change. Companies have to decide that they're going to change, right? When you say they put too much stock in a diversity leader or a diversity director or a diversity manager, I say they put too much weight on those people and do not equip them to be successful. And then when DEIB programs and initiatives fail, they look at an individual or a small team that doesn't have direct oversight that has transactional capabilities only internally to blame for a failure. And that I think is an easy scapegoat for a lot of companies. 1000% agree. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And speaking of scapegoats, the fourth piece is DEIB skills should be part of learning. Like I, I just say to myself, I, I couldn't, I can't tell you how many times we've said learning and development is a critical aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So I'm not even going to jump on the horse. I'm, I'm just going to say to everyone out there listening, like if you're not a member of Red Thread, you're not going to be able to see this particular article. But certainly you can see some of the other articles that Stacia and her team have put together. Fifth point is DEIB skills are in demand, but we don't know how to teach them, which ties right back into the very beginning when we talk about um, unconscious bias training, traditional training not working. You know, the skills are in demand, but we don't know how to teach them. You know what it reminds me of, Julie? It reminds me of something that Josh Burson just released about a month ago. And when he queried HR leaders, and I can't remember how many leaders he queried, the number one skill or the number one challenge that HR folks had, this is according to Josh Burson, not Torrin, the okay. number one deficiency was diversity and inclusion. The number one deficiency. Like number one. How can anyone be surprised by that? HR is a risk mitigation operational tool, not in that the mean sense of the word, method of eliminating risk, managing policy, and making sure that just like we talked about before with those NDAs, that the company is protected. Diversity is about protecting and growing the people within an organization fundamentally. And I'm sorry, HR people, I love you, but that's not your bag. That's not your jam. And so why should it be the expectation that human resources people are going to run DEI programs when all they've been taught to run in both training and practice is eliminating risk for the organization? That that would be, and that's a point that a lot of people would take issue with you saying because they would say that HR shows up differently today. And and so I, I, I get it. And, and okay. I, I'm with you. I think I'm with you. Uh, I, I know beautiful people like Tracy Sponenberg. <laughs> 
who will challenge me on my position around HR, and she does it in a very beautiful way. I'm sure people like Lars Schmidt would challenge us. Uh, Claude Silver from VaynerMedia would probably challenge me and you on that position because these chief people officers, people in HR today, absolutely see their role as being more critical, more business related, less risk mitigation related. How do we become more of a profit center and not a cost center? We want to be a promising line item, not a punitive line item. And so I I understand the argument that HR folks would take up with you and I on that posture. Here's what I would say as an assage, as an assage to the position and to that last statement in the red thread research, If you know that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging are not your jam, as Jay says, then bring in a consultant. Argue for bringing a consultant in, bringing that resource into the organization to help you and your employees. To help shape, shift your culture. Yes. Take that argument. Take up that fight and attach that fight to whatever you need to attach it to so that you can bring in the support that you need to help you put foundational practices and policies uh, and programming and effort in place. That that's what I would say to that. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah I would. And, and, and I'll acknowledge that what I said was a stereotypical statement and not every HR person is like that. I I'm aware. So don't beat me up on Twitter guys, but I also think that it comes back to that fundamental behavior of a company putting a requirement, a behavior, an expectation on a person, place, or thing within an organization to enact something that they do not have the skills to enact, and then blaming HR for its failure. We HR was built for a purpose, and it has a purpose that's important. Um, but you shouldn't expect your HR team to be DEIB professionals. That's that's not fair. And it's not correct. There's a lot of passion around it. And there's a lot of competency, I think. But there has not been the opportunity within HR, for the most part, to develop DEIB skills. Yep. I agree with you 1000%. So before we get out of here, just a couple of quick mentions. Uh, Victoria Millian uh, dropped a change.org petition. Um, And it's really about a a petition around combating transgender uh, bills. You can find it over on change.org. And the petition is titled HR Business Leaders in opposition to anti-transgender laws. At the time of recording, it looks like 588 people have signed and actually the number just jumped as I'm looking at it. Uh, So by the time you all listen to this, it may be a lot closer to the 1,000 that they're trying to get to. Uh, So find that petition over on change.org. It's titled HR Business Leaders in Opposition to Anti-Transgender Laws. Last but not least, uh, to learn more about Mitch Landrew, who I quoted in the beginning of this show, you can visit www.unumfund.org. That's U-N-U-M fund, F-U-N-D dot org, unumfund.org. Jay? 
Yeah, so um, two quick name drops for me this week. Um, the first one to the happy couple, the bride and groom, um, our very best friends in this beautiful Columbus, Indiana, where we live. Um, congratulations. Thanks for av- having us be a part of your your day. Um, and, and second to the jury of the George Floyd case, the family of George Floyd, the daughter of George Floyd, Accountability is one piece. Justice is the next step where we shouldn't have to celebrate someone being accountable for a fully videoed, fully publicized murder of a black man on a street in the United States. But for the first step, accountability, celebrate today. You said that to me yesterday and I I appreciated that because I wasn't sure how to feel torn but to my to my white friends to 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 the rest of us out there who um need to be better allies gotta keep our boots on gotta keep up to work and let's celebrate this accountability but no we still have a long way to go to get to justice starbucks sent out a tweet that said we still have work to do to address systemic racism and ensure everyone has an equal chance to succeed and thrive i close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe and to find your voice like be a better human let's create better culture let's create better teams and better workplaces for now jay and i are ghosts see ya The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.